going everybody all right so a lot of stuff has gone down since the last secular talk show um there are about three or four topics that i've been really really itching to dive into Uh, i will talk about the nba strike which lasted fully one game barack obama had a lot to do with that being shut down um he's doing it again he's blocking progress again we have Chaos continuing in Portland. We'll discuss that. We have NPR ran an article called In Defense of Looting. And I want to I talk about rioting, looting, property damage, and uh, really give it a lot of attention because this is an issue that's obviously big today. And I do think that there's a split on the left. And nobody really has kind of taken the time to really dive into the different nooks and crannies of the issue, and that annoys me. It's like everybody just assumes certain things about rioting or looting, and they move forward based off those premises, but we should examine the premises and and see, you know, what's reasonable on that front, because it's actually a very, very nuanced, intricate, complex conversation to have. Um, I have some new numbers on psychological mental illness in this country, and it is not good. And, um, of course, later on in the show, I got Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi's in the show today, Um, CNN back Russiagating. I will talk about the Rand Paul protest thing, too. But anyway, so without further ado, let's get started. Here we go, and we're going to do it with uh, the NBA playoffs and, and what's going on with that. So a very interesting thing happened in the past week. The Milwaukee Bucks decided to strike and not play a playoff game against the Orlando Magic. Now, after that, the strike grew, 
and every team decided not to play their games on that day. And then there was an emergency meeting of, you know, the entire NBA crew behind the scenes after this happened. And um, it was really one of those moments that felt like, okay, this could be the start of something amazing, something that's somewhat unprecedented. I mean, when you look back historically at big political moments in sports, of course, you think of Muhammad Ali um, protesting the Vietnam War. You think of what Colin Kaepernick did. I believe it was in 2016. And then this really felt like, okay, wait, is this the beginning of a new chapter? And was there a snowball effect where there's no looking back now? Now, that night, there were even conversations about, hey, maybe we cancel the rest of the season. It's been a tumultuous season so far. Obviously, COVID, you know, interrupted it. And then the NBA worked hard behind the scenes to basically set up what's effectively a COVID bubble where they're in a hotel um, and they're in a hotel or a couple hotels, I believe, in Orlando, Florida. And they've kind of, you know, made it so that people get tested regularly. It's a little COVID bubble. So it's already been a tumultuous season, but there were murmurs about, hey, maybe the entire season is going to get canceled. Apparently the Clippers and the Lakers, Lakers led by LeBron James, they were kind of pushing for, hey, we're, we're done here. We're not, we're not even going to play the rest of the season. And the main reason that was floated was what happened with Jacob Blake, the killing, or he was been paralyzed, he was shot, and now he's paralyzed but the shooting of Jacob Blake and the fact that, you know, the officer who is responsible was not arrested. So behind the scenes, the Milwaukee Bucks were trying to get the Wisconsin DA on the phone when they were refusing to take the floor. And um, I don't know if they were successful in that, but when they had that emergency meeting that night about how they're going to proceed, something interesting happened how Barack Obama helped convince NBA players to end their strike and return to play. In a call with Chris Paul, who I believe is the the union head in the NBA, and LeBron James, Barack Obama urged NBA players to return to the court and resume the playoffs. So what Obama said to them is, hey, you know, I respect what you're doing. I think it's wonderful. You're standing up for issues that you care about dearly. But you should play, finish the season, and the NBA will commit to forming a social justice commission. A social justice commission. And that apparently was enough to get the Milwaukee Bucks, apparently the Lakers and the Clippers, who were on the side of let's just end the season, that was enough because they respect Barack Obama for them to say, okay, we'll step down, we'll return to play immediately, and will form this social justice commission. Now, what do we make of all this? Well, first and foremost, I mean, let's get out of the way up front. They respect Barack Obama, but perhaps the people who are looking up to Barack Obama as their guiding star on these issues, they don't understand his actually rather complicated record when it comes to leading the country. They don't understand that this is also the guy who waged an illegal drone war that killed 90% innocent civilians. He killed a 16-year-old 
American boy, Abdul Rahman Alalaki, without a trial. So that, again, is massively unconstitutional. Now, I don't have to sit here and go through everything in his record, but let's just say the dude did not legalize marijuana and did not free every single nonviolent drug offender. So in many ways, he inherited a broken, racist criminal justice system, and he didn't do enough to redress the grievances. Now, did he? So I get it. You know, they look up to him. They view his guidance as something that they value. But ultimately, the guy is not fully on board with the spirit of this protest and this strike and this movement. So really, you're trusting somebody who, I mean, a large part of his record has been effectively being a left gatekeeper. Hey, you can go this far, but you can't go a step further. And that's the history of the new Democrats, the neoliberal corporatists. It's the, hey, we're the effective, efficient, triangulating status quo managers. So, you know, don't worry. We'll never fully commit to changing the status quo, to, to reform. But we will give you some sprinkles here and there, some crumbs of change to make you think that we're the good guys. And apparently that facade, that veneer, is something that really convinced the NBA players. And so they trusted Barack Obama. And with that trust, Barack Obama effectively stopped them from really fulfilling their potential to actually bring about change. Now, so that gets to the conversation. What the hell should they have done? I mean, first of all, listen, credit to them for even doing a single game strike, because the fact of the matter is, it really was not incumbent on them. They didn't have to do it. It's very easy for people who are in these lanes to say, I'm going to stay in my lane because this is my job. This is what I'm paid to do. So I actually think the intentions of what they were doing uh, is commendable. And I have nothing but respect for them for even having the nerve to, to, to pull the trigger on this, even if it's just for one game. So I think the intentions are there. I think they definitely mean well, um, but if you're going to dip your toe in this water, you should go all the way in. Now, something that could have been effective, something that could have worked, is the NBA, every team in the NBA, they get together, they talk it out. I mean, honestly, it would be even better if you, can, if you somehow have connections to other of the major sports leagues and you talk to them NFL, MLB, NHL, so on and so forth. And if you got together and planned just a professional sports strike until certain demands are met, I think there's a really good chance that those demands will be met. Why? Because, I mean, Americans love our sports. We love our sports. And there's also no replacing the best in the world. You can't just have you know, the people who are in the minor league step up because it's like, it's not the same. If you want to see LeBron James, you got to see LeBron James. It's not, you know, it's not like somebody in the minor leagues, no disrespect to the people in the minor leagues because that's hard too, but it's not like they can scratch that itch. They just can't. So, and this gets to a, a bigger point, which is, guys, good intentions without leadership is just virtue signaling. And that's what ended up happening. The NBA had all the good intentions in the world, 
but they lacked the moral vision, the goals, and the leadership. So effectively, what they were trying to do here was destroyed, and they just ended up virtue signaling, which, by the way, then makes people hate you more. Because <laughs> then people are, oh, oh, yeah, you're really impacting change. You sat out one game and got Dickie McGee's acts accomplished. I hope you feel good about yourself. Oh, do you feel good? You wanted to say racism is bad? Wow, what a bold take. Like, this is, it's so easy to mock people who do that because virtue signaling is effectively just masturbation. I'm a good person, and I want to let you know that I'm a good person. So I'm going to say I'm a good person. Do you think I'm a good person? And that's something that, like, really turns people off. So what they needed was they needed the clear goals. They needed the leadership. And they needed the commitment in order to really make this work. So they went into it in sort of a half-assed kind of way, even though the intentions were good. And now the results are nothing happened. So could have been. Well, there should have been a, a league meeting where they sit down and say, what do we really want? What exactly are our demands? Obviously, the number one thing on their mind was arrest the person who shot Jacob Blake. Okay, that could be your number one demand. That's fine. But if you're going to stop there, that's not going to change anything because there's going to be another Jacob Blake, and there's going to be another Jacob Blake, and there's going to be another Jacob Blake, and there's going to be another Breonna Taylor, and the list goes on and on. So they should have sat down, said, guys, we're going to come up with a list of demands, and we're not going to get back to playing until these demands are met. And there's a lot to put on them, I know, but if you're going to strike one game, well, why not go further, and why not actually bring about the change that you want? So they could have made a list of even the Campaign Zero reforms. There are people who are working on this issue of criminal justice reform and have dedicated their lives to it, and they've come up with some damn good ideas. So what are those ideas? Number one, end broken, win broken windows policing. Number two, community oversight boards for the police. Number three, official limits on the use of force, clearly defined guidelines. Number four, uh, independently investigate and prosecute cops who commit crimes. Number five, have community representation in the police. Number six, have universal body cameras that film the police. Number seven, have, you know, uh, new de-escalation training where there's an emphasis on it. Number eight, you end all for-profit policing, banned, gone, never again. Number nine, you demilitarize the police. They don't need weapons of war. Number 10, fair police union contracts. And then the most important, which is not in the Campaign Zero list, but I think is the major defining issue when it comes to race relations in our time, is you have to end the drug war, free the nonviolent drug offenders, and legalize recreational marijuana. You have to do it. Because the statistics are clear. The drug war is enforced in a racist way. And you have mass incarceration, which is effectively the new Jim Crow. And so there's never going to be racial justice unless you free all the nonviolent drug offenders and you legalize recreational marijuana. Because the drug war is the fuel that allows police officers to continue to over-police certain communities and exploit them. And that creates a giant rift between police and communities of color. So if you get rid of the fuel, then the issue overnight gets so much better. So... What if they had an NBA meeting, they sat down, they said, here are the things that we're really calling for when we talk about change, okay? And then they settle on three of them. Let's say um, free the nonviolent drug offenders, legalize recreational marijuana, arrest the, the 
cop who shot Jacob Blake. Those three things. And they say, we will not step foot on the court again until these things are done. And then oftentimes all you need is a spark, guys. And so people see this spark and they go, you know what? I need to do my part as well. And then what if you have one other sports league sign on to it? And they strike. What if the NFL says, you know what? We got some right-wing billionaire asshole owners. We hate them. We're going to strike in solidarity with the NBA, and we're going to sign on to that list of demands. What do you think would happen, guys? What do you think would happen? See, power concedes nothing unless you force it to. I mean, something that we know is going to happen eventually anyway, the legalization of recreational marijuana at the federal level, If you take away Americans' pro sports, which we love, until that demand is met, I think you're speeding up the process. I think you'll probably win on at least one of your demands pretty soon. So that's what could have been. And what I'm begging people to do, and this isn't just the NBA, because, again, I give them credit because their intentions are, are good. But I also mean this for people who are in the streets protesting and who are out there trying to make a change. For the love of God, it's not enough to rely on slogans, to rely on platitudes, to rely on cliches, to rely on virtue signaling. It's not enough. Because then really what you're asking for is nothing. You're not asking for anything. So what I'm begging people to do is have a strategy and have clear goals. Because then... All this stuff is not in vain. Then there's a purpose. Then there's meaning behind it. But if you don't have a strategy and you don't have clear goals, really you're just blowing off steam. And you are virtue signaling. And you are telling me, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. See, my shirt says Black Lives Matter. My sign says Black Lives Matter. Aren't I a good person? Aren't I on the right side of history? Maybe I should go berate some people to say these words also. What would, that changes nothing. That changes absolutely nothing. Now, if you're out there and you're saying, hey, we're going to be out here every single day until you free every nonviolent drug offender and legalize recreational marijuana. Oh, now we're talking. Now we're getting somewhere. Now there are clear demands that need to be met in order for your movement to cease. That's how you bring about real change. And I think the biggest problem is that everybody's got these good intentions. Everybody means well. They get right up. They're so close. They're right there. But then ultimately it all comes to naught because people don't even know what the hell they're asking for. They don't know what they're asking for, which means there's a total lack of leadership and vision and clarity. And then, you know, all you do is breed resentment. It's like the poll. There's a poll that just came out not too long ago. Um, In the wake of one of the recent shootings, support for Black Lives Matter was insanely high. I forget the exact number, but like plus 22 or something like that. New poll just came out. Support for Black Lives Matter is plus zero. Why? Because now all people see nonstop on the news is like, in some instances, protests. But in other instances, yes, rioting. And they see protests and they're like, I don't even know really what you're asking for. So it just seems like now there's utter chaos going on and you're part of the chaos. So now I don't like you. This is what people are thinking. I think that you could have maintained that very high favorability rating if, first of all, if everybody, you know, remained peaceful every step of the way. But beyond that, 
if there really were very clear defined goals. And then add on top of that, if police are aggressive against peaceful protesters, we know from history, because of what happened in the civil rights movement, that makes normie America, the, you know, the moderates in America, that makes them sympathetic to the cause of the peaceful protesters because they see the cops as acting in an evil way and they see the protesters as making reasonable demands and that brings more people to the cause. So I do think that this MBA thing is just a great example of how a lack of vision and leadership and clear defined goals means everything can come to naught. And then when you add in the fact that they're relying on a guy who's effectively undermining them, Barack Obama, then here we are. And we didn't get much out of it. And everything else they're doing is similar to, you know, what the NBA has already done. Hey, put like right Black Lives Matter on the back of some jerseys, equality on others, you know, people, how many more on others? Like people pick these phrases, they got Black Lives Matter on the court, and they feel like we're doing something. But what do I always tell you guys? The establishment, the status quo, the powers that be will always cave on the, on the symbolism first because nothing hinges on it. They're making concessions without making concessions. What you need to do is organize and strategize and have clear goals to have them actually make concessions. And unfortunately, we're not even close to that yet. Okay. Next. Next, 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 next. Chaos is continuing in Portland, and it just got worse. Man in Patriot Prayer hat shot dead in Portland during violent clashes between Trump supporters and BLM. Chaos on the 95th night of unrest after a caravan of 600 cars waving MAGA flags drove into the city and confronted protesters. One person was shot dead on Saturday night in Portland as Trump supporters clashed with BLM activists. The man was wearing a Patriot Prayer baseball cap, suggesting he was a supporter of the far-right group. Fans of the president had gathered in Clackamas on Saturday afternoon to cruise around Portland. They were met by Black Lives Matter activists, leading to scuffles, arguments, and pepper spray being used. Saturday night marked the 95th straight night of unrest in the Oregon City. Trump supporters across the country were out on Saturday afternoon showing their backing for the president. BLM activists also rallied in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where Jacob Blake was shot on August 23rd. Trump is set to visit Kenosha on Tuesday to meet with law enforcement and survey damage from riots. In Washington, D.C., tear gas was used to push protesters away from the White House. Um, Okay, so this was, you know, another recent shooting that happened. And then, of course, before that, you had you know, another one where the 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse, who was like a, a big Blue Lives Matter supporter, was open carrying, um, and he ended up killing, I believe it was multiple people, but I'm not sure. But what I'm seeing now, guys, in the wake of all of these shootings, is that it's, it's nonstop dissecting of who's in the right, who's in the wrong, why, why not. I saw it in the wake of the Kyle Rittenhouse thing. Um, I, I saw it in the wake of this one. There, some people are saying, hey, the right winger who got shot was macing a left winger, so the left winger was doing it in self-defense. 
back with the Kyle Rittenhouse one, I saw similar arguments of like, well, he was being chased. Apparently, he shot somebody, and then he ran away. People were chasing him because he shot somebody, and then he was... He, he was like, he got hit to the ground or something, and then he shot after he was chased. So, there, again, big debates going on as to whether or not um, the shooting constitutes self-defense or not. This, this one here, exact same conversation is happening. And, I mean, I don't know how much wisdom I have to add to this conversation other than to say this is, like, this is the ultimate culmination of the culture war becoming real life in the starkest way. See, when you have the Black Lives Matter activists out there and you have the hardcore MAGA people out there, and by the way, I've seen the the pictures and the videos of the caravan coming in. Man, you're not going to convince me that the 600 cars of people waving the MAGA flags going to Portland, Oregon, when they know that there's unrest there, you're not going to convince me that they're not looking for trouble. Because they are. They absolutely are. Why would you go to a place that is now getting a reputation as, like, lawless, left-wing hooligans, you know, running the streets, unacceptable. And then they come, and I have no doubt that in their own mind they think, well, we're going to bring law and order. But no, you're going to add to the lack of law and order. You're going to bring mayhem and chaos. And that, honestly, is exactly like Trump himself, where he tries to act like, oh, Joe Biden's the, you know, the candidate who's against law and order, but my dude, you just did the thing not too long ago where you said, I'm going to deploy the U.S. military on our own streets, invoke the Insurrection Act, and then you gassed peaceful protesters and did a photo op with a Bible in front of a church. You know what that is? That's the opposite of law and order and stability. That's you adding to the chaos. That's you pouring fuel on the fire. Step in the, how many, 600-car mega caravan Of course that's going to add to the mayhem. Of course that's going to add to the chaos. i got to tell you guys, we're honestly lucky that there's only been two high-profile shootings recently. It could get way, 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 way worse. And I do think that at this point, this has become a magnet for the most fringe people in the entire country. That's what's happening. It's become a magnet for the most fringe people in the entire country. And... This is, this is something to actually fear, the degree of the fighting in the streets. How bad is it going to get? How much, how much can happen? How much longer can this go on? How many people are going to get involved? Because this is a, a level of anger, vitriol, and partisanship that I think is honestly the worst in my lifetime for sure. And you have to say it, everything is exacerbating it. Everything is exacerbating it. Like, you know, when cops all the time end up killing unarmed black people, that, of course, is going to lead to social unrest. When Trump is out there being ruthlessly partisan and basically saying Democrats hate America and they want to take down the country, that's going to fire up his base and make them, you know, incredibly close-minded and intolerant of those who disagree. And then when you add on top of it all, and I really think this is the cherry on top, which maybe is most responsible for fueling this all, that the country's falling apart, man. The country's falling apart. The economy is a mess. We're effectively in in a depression. We have 20% real unemployment. 
that's going on. You have COVID. And, I mean, keep it real, even though the lockdowns were necessary to some extent, the fact that we had the lockdowns, one million percent exacerbated people's psychological and mental illnesses. And so you have the entire country falling apart. You have people with no purpose, no meaning, no structure in their lives. And then now it's all coming to a head in the most movie-like ways, honestly. I mean, you literally have, like, people in the streets wearing the masks, walking around with weapons, the MAGA people riding into town acting like they're going to save the day when they're just going to exacerbate the problem. And, you know, I don't see any real end in sight. I don't. I don't. Um, I mean, I know it sounds corny. I know it sounds cliche. I know it sounds silly almost, but for the love of God, everybody needs to pump their brakes. Everybody needs to reel it in a little bit. That's easier said than done. You know, I'm talking to you guys from a comfy air-conditioned studio, so in some ways you could flip it right on me and say, what the hell does this guy know? Hey, man, shut the hell up. You know, you're not directly involved with any of this stuff. I do know that increasing sectarianism only leads to devastating consequences. And it's not like the U.S. is magically exempt from what we've seen historically everywhere else. You know, do you need to bring up the Rwanda example, the Hutu and the Tutsis? I know you could say, well, that we're not there yet. We're on the road. We're on the road. I think everybody's got to pump their brakes. Everybody's got to reel it in. We have to take a couple deep breaths. And um, what's happening is people are, everybody's turned on their fellow Americans. And the political divides, ideological divides, have become so strident that people are so ossified in their worldview and their beliefs that there's no giving of even an inch. And honestly, this just gets in the way of people recognizing who the real crooks are and who's really screwing you. I mean, you guys know my view on it, and we talk about it all the time on this show, but you have a system where corporations and the billionaires and the wealthy effectively own the politicians and run the government and get whatever they want implemented into law. And then you get left behind. Working people get left behind. That's a working person who's on the right, and that's a working person who's on the left. And instead of uniting, diagnosing the problem, understanding the problem, and pushing for the solutions, where we do have powers in in, in number, power in numbers to get that done, instead of doing that, everybody's turning on each other. Everybody's turning on each other. And there's really clear, you know, dividing lines when it comes to race, when it comes to ideology. And we'll never get our act together if we can't take a few deep breaths, pump our brakes, look at this situation objectively. Because we've already had it. We've had situations where left-wingers get killed. We have situations where right-wingers get killed. We have, you know chaos and, and sort of leaderless anarchy happening in multiple places. None of that is going to bring about 
the solutions that we really need. There are ways to get the solutions, but first we have to agree on the problem and then organize and strategize to get to the solutions. And we're so far away from that at the moment. And all I see is people will continue to harden themselves in their stance. And I don't think the future of this country at the moment is bright. And I think that this is the real culmination of a lot of terrible trends in society. It's all unraveling in front of us. So I take no joy in it. I take no pleasure in it. And I want to try to do everything I can to prevent it from getting worse. But, you know, who knows how successful we'll be. All right, next. Now we're going to talk about, this is, the, this is the segment that I was really, really looking forward to because it is, um, there's a lot to say about it. So there was an article in NPR that went viral. And I'll show you, it says, one author's argument in defense of looting. And so, People who are right-leaning definitely pounced on this and basically used it as, you know, a prime example of, like, see, the left are totally lawless. They believe in chaos and anarchy, and this is totally out of lockstep with mainstream America, and look at how insane these people are. That's effectively the point that was being made. Now, there's actually a really, really interesting and important philosophical and moral conversation to be had about the utility of looting, rioting, uh, property violence, so on and so forth. So I want to dive into it and and be as as nuanced and thoughtful as possible and really try to represent a, a variety of different viewpoints on this. So first of all, let's make the obvious point. The obvious point is all of these instances of rioting and looting, they happen immediately after a a well-publicized, tragic event. So recently, of course, what it's been is um, shooting and killing by cops of unarmed black people or just shooting of unarmed black people by cops. And you have these videos, these stories that go viral, and sometimes the facts are murky, sometimes not so much. But what happens is, There's an outcry, there's outrage, and then there ends up being either rioting or looting or some mix thereof. In some instances, uh, there's peaceful protests, but there always is some event that then leads to it. So, I mean, listen, Occam's razor in this situation, honestly, would be, okay, do you want rioting and looting to end? Stop killing unarmed black people. Now, that's not, that's not, you know, an argument that you hear often these days. That's not something that people on the right will really accept. They'll say, like, oh, you're taking agency away from the people who are doing these things, and that's, you know, unfair. You shouldn't do that. They're responsible for their actions. But what I'm saying is simply it's not a coincidence that 
rioting and looting happens after those instances. There's a direct correlation. And it, if you talk to these people, they will tell you this is why they're doing it. And there is a, a logic to it. Now, it, it's a perverse logic, you know, and you could agree or disagree with it. But the logic is, hey, you broke the law, so we can too. If the cops are going to willy-nilly break the law and end people's lives, which is the ultimate way to break the law, the most immoral thing you could do, well then, okay, two could play that game, and we can break the law too. So go ahead. You keep breaking the law, we'll keep breaking the law, and maybe you'll learn your lesson. So there is a, a logic to it, whether or not you agree with it. Now, Martin Luther King, of course, famously said, in a speech that was condemning riots, he said effectively that a riot is the language of the unheard. And, you know, people who make peaceful change impossible make violent change inevitable or something to that effect. So whether or not you agree with that is irrelevant. Whether or not you have an emotional reaction to all this is irrelevant. The fact of the matter is there is always something that sparks it, and perhaps if you took away the spark, then that wouldn't happen. So that's point number one. Now, point number two is Noam Chomsky actually had a, a brilliant take on this that stuck with me ever since I first heard it. He was talking about you know, the logic of property violence to try to get a certain political ends. And he said, basically, the, in, in the overwhelming majority of circumstances, you know, the property violence is, is unacceptable and you shouldn't do it. But he gives an example of one instance where he thinks it's actually perfectly reasonable to do it. He says, imagine you're an anti-war protester and you see a tank, you have access to a tank before it goes to Vietnam where you know the tank is going to be involved in, you know, killing innocent people. That's exactly what we were doing in Vietnam. And it doesn't have to be a tank, it could be anything. It could be an airplane, could be a shipment of guns that you know are going to be used to kill innocent people, whatever it is. He says, if somebody were to, you know, break into the factory at night and destroy the thing that's going to be used for indiscriminate murder, and no innocent people get hurt in the process of you doing that, he says that would be, a, you know, an example of a perfectly moral, logical, reasonable um, instance of, of property damage, property violence. And in fact, he would say it's the, the right thing to do. So what he's establishing there is it's not as black and white and as simple as, as people make it out to be. Now, in some ways, I think it is. And again, I'll get to that in a little bit. But another example of, you know, when is looting acceptable? Well, imagine you live in a country that doesn't have universal health care. I know, it's so hard to imagine. And um, your kid is sick and you can't afford the life-saving medicine. Would you, would you break into the pharmacy and, you know, take the medicine? Would you, you know, in a stealth way, kind of befriend somebody who works at the pharmacy, maybe, you know, find a way to get it where technically what you're doing is breaking the law because you're stealing medicine? If it's to save your dying kid, I don't think you'll find a single person, right wing or left wing, that would say, I wouldn't do that. I think everybody would do that. So that's an instance of, yes, you're taking something, you're breaking the law, but it's, the, it's the, actually the moral thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It's the correct thing to do. 
Now, you could say to this point, Kyle, these are more broad philosophical arguments that don't really, it's not really rubber meets the road, what's happening in empirical reality. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. But let's talk about those. So Hurricane Katrina, for example. After Hurricane Katrina, there, were, there was a bunch of looting that went on. Now, the media covered it, and famously, you know, they were, I think the reason why there was so much outrage around it is because the media seemed to care more about the looting than about the colossal death toll and the destruction. That in the wake of this natural disaster, when innocent people are being killed, it's like they're focusing on petty crime, and it shows how their moral compass prioritizes property more than it prioritizes the lives of poor people who were killed. So I think that's why people were uh, upset by it. And, but I do think it's fair to make a distinction. Like if somebody is stealing from a store some food to eat because they have no food to eat because they've been stuck on their roof for, for two days because of the hurricane, well, that person stealing food is only totally reasonable because they have to eat. But if it's somebody who's, I don't know, trying to steal a big screen TV or something, then yeah, there's more of a, a moral judgment to be made there where they're exploiting a tragedy for their own personal advantage in a way that's not out of necessity. So I think that there's definitely a distinction and a discussion to be had there about the differences. So the utility of it is where the conversation gets really interesting. Putting aside the morality of rioting, looting, so on and so forth, the utility of it is interesting. So does it, does it work? Does it bring about the change that people are, are trying to have, trying to get? Well, I mean, South Africa, I think, is a really good example of this because Nelson Mandela, when there were riots in the streets, Nelson Mandela was able to go to the white officials and say, hey, listen, man, you could deal with me or you could deal with them. And when the option is a guy who's super reasonable and then you have other people burning stuff down in the streets, that tends to make the officials go, okay, you got us, we'll work with you. It's like a good cop, bad cop scenario. And, you know, everybody's going to pick the good cop, but in order for the good cop to be the good cop, there's an argument, you need the bad cop. So in some ways it works. Now, there is a counterargument, though, and I think the counterargument is equally as persuasive. There was a study that came out about the civil rights movement, academic study, not too long ago, and they said that most change happened because Martin Luther King and everybody who was engaged in the civil rights movement, they were so committed to nonviolence as a matter of principle. They were pacifists that when the cops started being aggressive against them, people saw how nonviolent they were, and your average American, moderate America, looked at that and said, oh, my God, I'm really sympathetic to these people because they didn't even do anything wrong. They're getting attacked by dogs and having fire hoses turned on them. So as a direct result of them being almost overly peaceful, not even believing in self-defense, being pacifists, that made people flock to their cause, and then that's what led to the change. So in that instance, you didn't need a bad cop. You just had the good cop, and the good cop was so good that everybody sympathized with them, and then they ended up winning in the long term. So there are instances when this kind of stuff, even though you might ar argue it's immoral and unethical, it, it functions, it works, and then there are, there's a counterexample which I think is equally as convincing. So that leads to my main conclusion. What do I think about it overall? I think it's a really interesting, nuanced, detailed, thoughtful conversation, 
But I also think, as a matter of principle, you should never, you should never become the devil that you're trying to avoid. So in other words, think about all these instances as, what if somebody who's my ideological enemy acted in the way that I'm acting right now? What if it's somebody who's on the far right, somebody who's a fascist, who engaged in burning down a convenience store owned by an immigrant family? You know, how would the left react to that? The left would react to that and say, I mean, that's obvious violence. That's obviously illegal. That person should be arrested and prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And so you can't look at tactics through an ideological lens. You have to look at tactics and evaluate those tactics on their own merit, on their own merit. And an action, if an action is good or bad, it's good or bad whether you do it or whether your ideological opponent does it. So I think that you have to try to abide by your highest ideals and values and principles. And what that means is, yes, certain things should be off the table. Certain things should be unacceptable. And I don't think that there's really an excuse for, you know, the, the burning down of these small businesses, the, the destruction of private property of oftentimes, you know, oftentimes it's immigrant owners. And so you can't say that in the name of whatever it might be, racial justice, we're going to do all these things which are bringing about more injustice, and in some instances, injustice towards, you know, minority-owned businesses. Now, I get it that people say it's the same thing as the Katrina thing. People are mad that the media cares more about the property damage than about the lives that were lost at the hands of the state. I agree. That moral compass is out of whack and it needs to be adjusted for sure. But still, it never overlook bad actions if they're bad actions and if they're ethically wrong and morally wrong. And so you don't bring about justice by creating more injustice. If you use authoritarian tactics for peaceful ends, maybe you're just an authoritarian because you believe in the authoritarian tactics. I'm really not a believer in ends justify the means kind of thinking because you could effectively justify the worst evils of all in the process if you say, hey, if I get to this desired end goal, then it's worth it. Is it? But you did all these terrible things. What if I told you there's a way to get to that goal without violating your principles and your morals and your standards and your ethics? Wouldn't that be better? So I get it. Um, you know, there's definitely a point that we should focus more on the actual crimes at the hands of the state, and that will, and that takes priority over property damage, and we're over-focusing on the property damage to try to twist it so that, like, oh, see, the left are the bad guys here. I get all that stuff, but I do also believe that we do have to try to hold ourselves to the highest possible standard. And also because I do think, I do fall more in line with the civil rights philosophy um, than the philosophy that worked in South Africa. I'd rather bring about the positive change and be on the moral high ground the entire time than have to play good cop, bad cop, and acknowledge terrible actions on the left. So, I mean, that's my overall 
you know, breakdown of this issue. I, I, again, I really think this issue is fascinating, complex, nuanced. I think oftentimes there's a big split on the left, and I think oftentimes people do not acknowledge the, the immense nuance on this topic, and you have people who break off into these camps, and it becomes rather vituperative and didactic and, and black and white, and I don't like that. But, you know, hopefully we can we can be reasonable about it moving forward and you know we can acknowledge that it's generally a bad thing rioting looting is generally a bad thing the only instances where i think you can discuss uh, property damage in in a way that's moral is really the example that you know chomsky gave where it's like, okay, if you know that this thing is going to be used to kill somebody and nobody gets hurt in the process of you destroying it, okay, go right ahead. I do think that's a pretty clear example of it making sense. I do think if you're hungry and you need food to eat and you steal it, who's going to really blame you? Who's going to really blame you? If, if you need medicine for your sick, dying kid and you can't afford it, who's going to really blame you? There are pretty clear examples where almost everybody would acknowledge, like, yeah, that, it makes sense then, but... Let's not work backwards from our conclusion and also, you know, rationalize actions that are pretty indefensible where somebody who had nothing to do with police officers murdering innocent people, you burn down their business or you steal from them if they had nothing to do with it. So you're just creating more victims, granted a different kind of victim, but you're just creating more victims and more injustice. And I think, from my perspective, I care enough about the morality, the ethics, and the principles to say we, we should bring about change in a way where we abide by our values the entire time, and we don't violate them in an attempt to win, because once you violate them, you're becoming the devil you're trying to avoid. You're becoming more like your enemy than you would like to admit. And nobody can say, I'm good because I'm me. And that's effectively what ends justify the means arguments come down to. It's that I mean well, I'm good because I'm me. And I think that that really is, is kind of dumb. You know, this was the argument of the Bush administration when they did torture. And the torture ended up being of innocent people a large percentage of the time. But in their mind, they thought, well, what do you mean? Yes, we killed Japanese soldiers who tortured our people in World War II, but we can do it because we're us. We mean well. So since my intentions are good, overlook the actual actions. No, you can't. The actions are everything. And if you torture, you're a torturer. So uh, I think that we should try to be as consistent on this as possible. But I don't think that the media and I don't think that the dialogue around this is nearly as thoughtful as it should be. And unfortunately, people people make it very easy for others to caricature you, straw man you, and act like you believe things that you don't believe. And I just hope that the, the, the IQ level of this discussion significantly goes up, because right now it feels like a pretty dumbed-down conversation, and that doesn't do justice for the moment. Okay, next. (sighs) 
One more, and then we will take a break, bitch. So Glenn Greenwald highlighted some terrifying numbers in, I believe it's the general social survey. And these numbers have been overlooked by everybody. Media is not talking about them. Neither of the political parties are talking about them. But they paint a devastating picture. For Americans between 18 and 24 years old, 25.5%, just over one out of every four young Americans, said they had, um, for the much larger group, oh, did I mess that up? I think that's supposed to say said they had considered suicide. For the much larger group of Americans, ages 25 to 44, the percentage was somewhat lower, but still extremely alarming, 16%. A total of 18.6% of Hispanic Americans and 15% of African Americans said they had seriously considered suicide in the past month. Yes, that's what it means. The two groups with the largest percentage who said yes, Americans with less than a high school degree and unpaid caregivers, both of whom have 30% or almost one out of, th- of every three who answered in the affirmative. A full 10% of, US po- of the U.S. population generally had contemplated suicide in the month of June. Let me repeat that. 10% of the entire U.S. population had seriously contemplated suicide in the month of June. 25.5% of people age 18 to 24. That's astonishing. He goes on to say, 40.9% of respondents reported at least one adverse mental or behavioral health condition, including symptoms of anxiety disorder or depressive disorder, 30.9%, symptoms of trauma and stress-related disorder related to the pandemic, 26%, and having started or increased substance use to cope with stress or emotions related to COVID-19, 13%. For the, youngest, for the youngest part of the adult population, 18 to 24, significantly more than half, 62.9% reported suffering from depressive or anxiety disorders. This is an epidemic, ladies and gentlemen. This is an absolute epidemic that we have in this country. These numbers are out of this world. Now, what accounts for this? That's a difficult conversation. I'm just an idiot on YouTube who babbles. I'm really not qualified to answer that. Uh, I mean, I I could give you my guesses, but I just want to be clear up front that they're all guesses. Yes, there is a a significant portion of this is related to the fact that human beings are social animals. We had to lock down the economy because of COVID. So people didn't get out as much. They weren't being social creatures as much as they would like to be. And um, that is going to tend to increase psychological and mental illness. It is because human beings sort of need that social cultural connection with other people. And when they're deprived of that, yes, you're going to start feeling a hell of a lot worse. So I do think that's one thing. I I think a lot of this is just modern society as well. I do. When people don't have most importantly, material well-being, You literally need that in order to survive. You need material well-being in order to survive. When people don't have that, when people don't have love and support, when people don't have a 
a sense of purpose, this happens. So the, the solutions are, are multifaceted. Some of them are, have to be addressed at the community level, some of them more at the individual level. But, yeah, we need to make sure that we, we should treat mental health in the same way we treat physical health. Although we don't really, we have a terrible healthcare system, so maybe that's a bad example. But in the same way that we need a single payer healthcare system for physical health, we also need mental health care to be as readily available and free. I definitely, definitely think that's true. I also think just the fact that our political system is so broken and therefore people don't have the material well being, I also think that has to be addressed in order for people to feel better because people feel atomized and disconnected from everybody else, in part because society is structured to make, it, to make you feel that way. You know, there is no stressing of community in, in certain ways. Whereas in other developed countries, yes, there is more of a sense of like we're all in this together. You know, it, so many other countries, they have free health care, they have free education. Um, this Paying your taxes is viewed as like a patriotic duty to help uplift your neighbor paid vacation time by law, like we're really individualistic in this country in a way that other developed countries are just not. And I do think that's probably harming our, our psychological well-being. But the personal is political. So we need to organize and fight for a better life in order for people to start feeling better. But also on an individual level, I think that people really need to be able to forget the moment better. Because what's happening now, it's all too real. It's all too depressing. And I think that that is leading to a giant increase in depression and anxiety and all these negative thoughts. I can tell you guys for sure, the happiest I ever am is when I'm able to effectively tap into what's called the zone or a flow state. And when you're in that zone, when you're in that flow state, there's no consideration or concern for yourself, your individuality, your personhood, your ego. You're so tied up in the moment and you're so locked into the moment that everything flows. It flows in a very natural way. And when you're in that state, there are no worries there are no concerns, there's just actions, and there's just what is. It's a much more difficult conversation to say, how do we get to a flow state? How does any individual get to a flow state? But, you know, step one would be becoming obsessed with something, whether it's your job, whether it's a hobby. It, it has, step one is you have to find something that you're willing to dedicate time and energy and effort into. And even sometimes you have to work to... to Get to a place where you nurture a hobby enough to care about it. Sometimes you start a hobby, you don't like it, but if you keep doing it for a month and a half, after a month and a half, you're like, you know what, I actually really like doing this. It's where I unplug. It's where I zone out. That's, I can say, speaking from my own experience, that's when I'm my happiest, when I get in the zone, when I get in the flow state, when I'm focused on something in a way that totally dissolves any concerns for individuality or independence or my personhood or my ego or, or my perception of how others are viewing me or whatever it might be, that's all gone when you're totally immersed in an activity and you're basically drowning yourself in something that takes away all of your 
negative emotions and thoughts and feels. Now, again, I get it. It's easier, it's easier said than done, and some people who are experiencing severe anxiety or depression will respond with exactly that. They'll be like, that's so much easier said than done, and you don't even know what I'm going through. Correct. But what I do know is what you're doing now is not working. Because if it was, then you would feel okay, wouldn't you? And you don't feel okay. So, you know, forgive me for making a Trumpian argument here, but what the hell do you have to lose? What the hell do you have to lose? If things are not going well, you got to make some changes. And it seems like actually, in, conceptually speaking, it's a pretty simple step to try to lose yourself in a couple activities. By the way, you can do it with one, you can do it with two or three. Whatever it might be, give it the time, give it the dedication, give yourself the ability to move forward in a way where eventually you can step into a flow state. So, listen, I'm not trying to do the typical far-right thing of, like, boil down these complex, nuanced, societal, sociological issues into the individual, because I don't think that gives them justice. Um, But what I am doing is saying that is a part of the puzzle here. That is definitely a part of the puzzle. People who are losing themselves in activities are not the people who are going to turn around and say, yeah, I seriously contemplated suicide and I'm massively depressed and I have severe anxiety. So there, it is a multifaceted problem and there are many things that need to be done. Okay. You absolutely need to give people material well-being. That would be effectively social security for all, a UBI check, another stimulus check. People need material well-being. We also need a single-payer health care system, but also mental health care system. Because people need that professional support. They need, you know, if somebody needs a therapist, somebody needs somebody to rely on, somebody needs maybe life-saving medication, there's no shame in that at all. If you hurt your leg, you need medicine, you take it, you don't think there's a moral angle to it. Why would there be a moral angle to taking something for your mental health? It's the same as if your leg gets hurt. So that's another big part of it. We, and, but more importantly, we need the community, we need the love and the togetherness, and then beyond that is the individual. And when you talk about the individual stuff, the best way to address individual issues is, ironically enough, by losing your sense of that individuality. Isn't that weird? Somebody could have all these these personal, psychological, individual problems. The solution is the exact opposite of what one would think. The solution is, well, what if we erase that individuality? that you have at the moment? What if we got rid of that? What if we tapped into a higher plane, tapped into a different frequency that got your mind off all that nonsense? You'd take that deal, wouldn't you? It's funny, but the solutions are oftentimes the simplest concepts. But we think we are the, we're the smartest idiots on the planet, aren't we? Because people have a tendency to rationalize until the cows come home. Let me just overthink everything a million times over. And you're only getting in your own way if you do that. You ain't going to find no answers. You're just a brilliant idiot. Your mind is moving at 1,000 miles an hour. You ain't going nowhere, son. So what do you do? Unplug. Unplug it. Find something to do. Tap into a flow state. And just let the problems wash away, even temporarily. So anyway, these are really astounding numbers, and this is a a national scandal. And yet again, I'm going to say it again. How many times do I say this? 
on this show. You have to come to a loudmouth idiot YouTuber like myself in order to get any serious conversation about the most important issues of the day. That's a terrible indictment on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, the Nightly News, all of society, the politicians. The fact that there's no serious heart-to-heart conversation going on. When it comes to serious issues like this, there's no alarm bells being rung over this. That tells you that perhaps there's even more work to be done at the societal level because our institutions are beyond broken. Okay. Let me take a break. When we come back, I got Joe Biden's new ads. You don't want to miss it. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
welcome back, everybody. Welcome, welcome back. <clears throat> All right, let's talk a little bit about Joe Biden. He's got some new ads out. I want to play some of them for you. Oh, I can't wait until we get to the Socialists for Trump story. That's going to be something special. What number story are we on? Numero five. Here we go. Joe Biden is out with some new ads. Here's two of them. They're COVID-related. Let's watch, and then I'll break them down. Cheeks 
and and UV light being pumped in. <laughs> um, he said he was trying to pawn off responsibility, as he always does. This is classic Trump. Like, really, it's the governor's job. It's not my job. It's the governor's job. And then he was talking about, hey, you know, hey, Mike, don't call the governor of Washington. He's not kind to us. He's not nice to us. He was saying, oh, we did a great job with testing. Meanwhile, testing takes seven to eight days. It was taking seven to eight days. You know, I know because where I was, it was really difficult to get a test. It was really difficult to get a test. Uh, and then they highlighted the lack of PPE. You had some hospitals in the city where the nurses were literally wearing trash bags. They were wearing trash bags, man. So that, is, that was a good ad. And the, the advice I give to the Biden team is, yes, you have to put the focus on COVID and the economy. COVID and the economy. COVID and the economy. Because those really are the two biggest issues facing every American. We have 20% real unemployment. The economy's in shambles. Nearly 30 million Americans were food insecure within the past month. I mean, this is, guys, this is huge. The other thing that's huge is that now it's over 180,000 deaths from COVID. Millions of people have had it. It's still kind of out of control. Not good, guys. Really, really, really not good. Um, no matter how much Trump tries to take the focus off of this and put it on, you know, the rioting, looting, protests, law and order, I, I wouldn't go down that path with him. Because, uh, by the way, I think he's also self-destructing going down that path. He keeps pointing out, like, rioting, looting, and protesting and acting like Democrat cities have no law and order. Joe Biden doesn't believe in law and order. Joe Biden wrote the crime bill. You're not going to convince the American people that Biden is, like, secretly pro-Antifa or a commie. It's not happening. Let it go, dog. Let it go. So the more Trump points out that, oh, we have no law and order in our cities, the more people are reminded he's the boss. He's the president. The buck stops there. So let him self-destruct. Let him keep going down that path. You keep hammering on COVID in the economy and keep hiding in the basement, and you're going to be all right. Okay. Now we're going to talk about Democratic Socialists for Trump, which is a thing that happened at the RNC. So at the RNC, um, you know, they do a bunch of these, like, pre-produced puff pieces for the president and for, you know, Mike Pence. And here's one that really stuck out like a sore thumb. This This is something else. They did Democratic Socialists for Trump. Now, I don't have the entire video, unfortunately, but I do have a little snippet. Take a look. Going straight to the source is really how I was able to overcome some of those pitfalls. And so I want people to hear my story and know that you can actually go from being a democratic socialist to a Trump supporter, but you have to look deeper. I think there's a political realignment that's taking place. I've always been very anti-war, and now Trump is by a mile the anti-war candidate. I've always been very much for free speech. Trump is now by a mile the more pro-free speech candidate. That's rich. (laughs) 
I'm going to get back to uh, I'm going to get back to those points in a second. But okay, guys, you cannot run a campaign where the main focus is oh my god, far left, far left, far left. Oh my god, Antifa, BLM, Marxism. Oh my god, Joe Biden is a puppet of the radical left. He doesn't believe in law and order. Radical left is so bad, so bad. You can't say that half the time and then turn around and do a democratic socialist for Trump piece. Because that makes no sense. It's like me bashing fascism and then doing like a fascist for Kyle Kalinske piece. That makes no sense! It makes no sense! And this is one of the main problems with the RNC, is that Trump, he's putting the emphasis on the wrong arguments, but then there are other times as well he just contradicts himself, and he's trying to be everything to everybody. And it doesn't work. Like, in Trump's speech, he was all over the place, man. He was all over the place. He was like, you know, he did the whole typical Biden far left, Biden radical thing. But then also in the middle, he flipped and went back to some 2016 Trump attack lines of, like, Biden's for TPP and outsourcing jobs and the Iraq war. And, like, you, you have to pick one of those attacks. You can't pick both of those attacks. It just it doesn't make sense. And he can't help himself. He does, I'm telling you, he's surrounded by a bunch of people who have dulled his political instincts to the point where they're basically non-existent. So you can't bash the far left and then turn around and like say, we welcome the far left with open arms. That makes no sense. Now, to their specific points, the first one says something like, oh, you've got to look deeper. Look deeper or what? I'm looking as deep as I could possibly look. And you know what I see? A fraud, a con man, an establishment hack who pretended to be an outsider. That's what I see. This is a guy, Donald Trump, who put Wall Street in his cabinet. He cut taxes for the rich. He did the Bush tax cuts on steroids. That's what I see. I see a continuation of the status quo wrapped in the aesthetic of an outsider businessman. That's what I see. And you don't, because you're a sucker. The the other person brings up, I've always been really anti-war. Trump is by far the anti-war candidate. No, he's not. No, he's not. Why is it everybody's totally comfortable with pointing out Obama's hypocrisy when it comes to foreign policy, where he talked a good game about getting out of wars and then he kept us in wars? Why is it everybody recognizes that? He's a hypocrite. He's a fraud. He's a liar. Everybody recognizes that. When it comes to Trump, why does he get credit when he mouths anti-war stuff, but he continues all the wars? Why does he get credit? He literally said in an interview with Axios very recently, oh, how many troops are going to be left in Afghanistan? On election day, 5,000. When he got in office, there were 8,000 there. So you take 3,000 out, you still have 5,000 troops, and I'm supposed to give you credit for being anti-war? I'll give you credit for being anti-war when there are zero there, son. Get out of Iraq, get out of Afghanistan, get out of Syria, which is the new place he has us in, to steal their oil, as he said. 500 American troops there for no reason other than to jack natural resources in contravention of international law. Get us out of there, and then maybe we'll have a conversation. And, oh, yeah, stop escalating with Iran, assassinating Iranian generals willy-nilly again in contravention of international law. Stop escalating with Venezuela and trying to do secret coups over there. I'm supposed to give you credit for being anti-war when you're escalating all these wars? The only tiny little bright spot is North Korea, where you didn't actively go in the wrong direction. Everywhere else he went in the wrong direction, and you got clowns like this saying, oh, he's the anti-war candidate. Why? Why, numbnuts? Because all you do is listen to what politicians say and you don't actually look at what they do? Is that why? What a joke, man. How the hell do people fall for this stuff? 
How do they fall for this stuff? And then even the pro-free speech thing. Here, I'm going to blow your mind. You ready? Donald Trump is the most anti-free speech president we've had in decades, in quite a long time. Why do I say that? Because he's now said it multiple times that he would like to punish flag burning with a year in jail. That is against freedom of speech. Quite literally, there was a 1989 Supreme Court case that burning the flag is protected First Amendment speech. That is free speech. That is the definition of free speech. It is an act of protest. Nobody's getting hurt. You're just burning the flag. He says I should be punished with a year in prison, a year in jail. That is absolutely anti-free speech. As far as I know, Donald Trump is the only president of the United States of America who has sued somebody over a joke. That is the ultimate snowflake move. He sued Bill Maher over a joke. Need I go on? He talks about how we need to open up the libel laws and and have laws that are more like the UK, which they're not nearly as pro-free speech as we are here. I mean, the list goes on and on. He said he wanted to, you know, take away the credentialing for news outlets he doesn't like because they say mean things about him. President of the United States threatening to take away the credentials of news agencies because he doesn't like what they say. That's the exact opposite of freedom of speech. Exact opposite. The only, you know what he does? He just goes out there every now and then in these speeches and says, like, we believe in free speech on college campuses, don't we, folks? And that's all he has to say for every idiot in the country to be like, oh, my God, he loves free speech. Again, what he says is what they focus on. What he does, they never focus on. Ever. Ever. Democratic socialist for Donald Trump. Oh, please. Listen, if you're one of the, if you're one of the people who says, Joe Biden's record is so bad, I'm sitting out this election. I got no bone to pick with you at all. Your decision, man. Your decision. You can think it through on your own. You have your own criteria, your own standards. It's part of being an American. You can pick whatever you want on that front. Uh, so you want to sit out? Got no problem with you. You want to vote green? Got no problem with you. You want to vote Biden? Got no problem with you. If you vote Trump, there's no good argument for that. There's just none. I'm sorry. There's no good argument for that. Especially not with disingenuous, nonsense arguments like we just saw there. All right, next. This story blew up a few days ago. Figured we'd touch on it here. Nancy Pelosi just said she doesn't think there should be any debates. Quote, I wouldn't legitimize a conversation with him. I think he will probably act in a way beneath the presidency. Pelosi said she knows uh, that the Biden campaign views it differently, but she called a debate with Trump an excuse, in, an exercise, excuse me, in skullduggery. Okay, that's hilarious. She says, I wouldn't legitimize a conversation with him. He's the president of the United States. You're not legitimizing Dickie McGee's acts. He is, by definition, incredibly legitimate. Everything he says and does matters. He's the president of the United States. This, was, this reminded me, there was a tweet from one of the Chapo Trap House guys. And uh, he said... This was a while ago, too. He said Biden will refuse to debate Trump 
because they'll say it's platforming a fascist and the media will agree. Like, we're getting close, bro. We're so close. That might happen. That actually might happen. I mean, the argument Nancy Pelosi's using, I wouldn't legitimize a conversation with him because he'll act in a way that's beneath the presidency. He does that every day, whether or not you talk to him. Don't you want to, like, say, hey, here are contrasting worldviews? Let the American people see? Listen, I don't think that this is too thought out on Nancy's part, but of course the speculation is like, they're floating this. They want to get this out there because they think Biden's doing so bad mentally that it's like, we have to hide him. He can't do the debates. It'll hurt him. And so this is like, you know, the trial balloon on that front. Do I buy that? Not really, um, because Biden's team is planning on debating. Biden is planning on debating. Um, so I do think that Nancy Pelosi just actually believes the thing she said here. Like, oh, he's going to act in a way that's beneath the presidency. I wouldn't legitimize a conversation with him. Just don't do the debate. And she does probably think that in some ways that'll help Biden. Listen, if, if Joe Biden, if they drug up Joe Biden, he's going to be fine. I'm seriously not worried if they drug him. I'm not worried. So, and that's what happened in the Bernie Sanders debate. I don't know what they gave him. My guess is Adderall, Seroquel, some mix thereof, whatever it is. But he was fine. He was all there. Now, how long does that last? Hour and a half max. So maybe if it's a two-hour debate, that final 30 minutes, you're going to be white-knuckling it. But he'll be fine if they give him some drugs. If they don't give him some drugs, then we're in trouble. Then we're in trouble, for sure. But I do think um, it is a little bit overblown, the fear of, oh, my God, if there's a debate, it'll definitely help Trump. That's a little bit overblown because Biden actually has a quality about him, which is similar to a quality Trump has about him, which is he just comes across as kind of unrehearsed, you know what I mean, unfiltered. And I think that's a quality that does well in debates, that people like in debates, because when you talk, it actually sounds like a person talking. It doesn't sound like an overly rehearsed robot. People tend to naturally tune out when they hear something like that. So I think Biden has that quality. So it's not a guarantee that Trump is going to win the debate, especially if not Biden's on the sauce. If he's on something, possible Biden wins the debates. It, it is. So I don't know. I want, me personally, because this is what I do, everybody knows this, but I want to see the debates. I do. Um, and I think if he's on something, Biden, he'll be fine. And it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Maybe it's a split. Trump wins one, Biden wins another, whatever it might be. Um, but I do find it kind of funny that the Democrats are really, like, unironically making these arguments of, like, I wouldn't legitimize a conversation with the President of the United States. This is part of, like, the self-disenfranchisement that many people on the Democratic side do. In this case, it's Nancy Pelosi, corporate Democrat, hack, hater, so on and so forth. But I've seen this on the actual left, too. Like, the, they don't realize it, but they're self-disenfranchising because they don't want to engage with anybody who they don't already agree with. And it's like, why are you so childish? Like, get over yourself. You're not that special. Like, get over it. Get over it. Fucking talk to whoever. It's kind of amazing. But anyway, um, hilarious. Don't legitimize the conversation with the President of the United States. All right. 
Let's talk about MSNBC. MSNBC discovered a little something about Black Lives Matter protesters when they had some dialogue with some of them. This is interesting. What impact do you foresee their movement having on the election? Yeah, I spend a lot of time at protests, especially with the youth. Um, I've, I've, you know, been there from a personal reason, but also from an academic reason as well. I ask people there, you know, what are you going to do in November? Why are you here? What are you going to do in November? And they say, I'm not going to show up because Bernie is not on the ticket. And I think that this highlights a point, you know, which is that even though we had this Democratic National Convention that was meant to unify a party, the DNC did not bring in the youth, you know, and I think they need to do a better job of giving folks who have legitimate concerns about the direction of this country and their own interactions with institutions, including law enforcement, right, to be, to be viewed, to be seen, to be heard, and to be included in the class. That's great. I love the... Uh the host says, wow, <laughs> when, when she says, oh, I spoke to a bunch of the people and they said, I'm not, probably not going to vote because Bernie's not on the ticket, the MSNBC was like, wow. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not surprised by this. Are you guys surprised by this? I'm not very surprised by this. And then, you know, they accurately make the point, hey, the DNC was meant to unify the party, but it didn't really unify the party. They didn't really bring in the youth. That's right. They made a decision. The decision was, let's put front and center people like John Kasich and Michael Bloomberg. Let's bring in a bunch of speakers from the 1996 Republican convention. And what did you think was going to happen? You think young people are going to flock to that party? No, because, listen, here's the deal. A lot of younger people, they know when they're being placated. They know Like, they really thought they could just, you know, the Biden people could just give us a little pats on the head, placate us. Let's have a unity commission where we come up with ideas that we won't do. Is that enough for you, stupid lefty? Turns out most people, a lot of people on the left see that and they're like, yeah, that's ridiculous. I'm not buying it. You wrote the crime bill. You voted for the Iraq war. You're part of the establishment. You try to cut Social Security. What do I want to tell you? It is what it is. Like... That's your record. I don't like your record. What do you want me to tell you? So, of course this was going to happen. Now, I also find it funny, though, when they said, oh, the DNC was meant to unify the party. No, the way to unify the party would be to rally around an agenda that appeals to the party. If they wanted to rally around that agenda, then the things that were specifically rejected from the platform would have been included in the platform. Legalized marijuana, for example. Overwhelming majority of the American people were for that. Medicare for all, overwhelming majority of the American people are for that. If you really wanted to unify the party, you can't just say unify around that person. It's got to be unify around a message and a set of policies that represent our values. And they're not doing that. They're trying to just say, shut up, turn your brain off, it's Biden. That's why they were, you know, they were angrily going after Ocasio-Cortez because she did her job following the procedures of the convention and, you know, seconded Bernie Sanders to be the nominee. People were getting mad at her. 
because she wasn't sycophantic enough to Joe. Because she didn't mention Joe in her minute that they gave her, whatever it was. Minute 30 seconds. I don't remember the exact number. And it's like, all they know how to do is berate you, shame you, insult you, pester you to fall in line and shut up and support Joe. And they don't realize that this isn't something that works. What would work is serious, real concessions that are believable that Joe Biden will actually do on policy. But instead, they don't do that. They bring in Kasich and Bloomberg to tell all the you know, older suburban voters, don't worry, he won't go too far left. And then they're mad when the people who are young and on the left are like, okay, got it, thank you. All the policy concessions cut in one direction, neoliberal, corporatist, right, right wing. That's the policy concession. That's the ideology. We get just the symbolic stuff, you know? So people are onto it, man. People are onto it. Listen, my advice, if you want to get these young people to vote, all you have to take one policy, bro. Take one policy that young people really care about and hammer it home repeatedly. That's how you'll get young people to vote for you. That's it. Take one policy. You know, I would say legalizing marijuana would be a good one. You know what? I was wrong. You guys are right. I'm going to legalize marijuana. I'm going to change the scheduling, and I'm going to do it on the first day in office. If you go out there and you hammer that home, young people will turn out for you in overwhelming numbers. If you don't do that, it's a crapshoot. Who knows? Or you could even, like, so nominally... Biden says he's in favor of a $15 minimum wage now. He never talks about it. Why does he never talk about it? Because he's actually not in favor of it. <laughs> he, just, he just said it once and pretended because Bernie pushed him there, and then he just shh, didn't, talk, didn't talk about it. If Biden were to, in every single speech, every single time he spoke, talk about this is my number one issue now, and I'm going to push for it relentlessly, that would also get young people out. But instead of doing that, they'll shame and insult young people, left-wingers, and um, they'll continue to really agree ideologically with the likes of Mike Bloomberg. All right, Russiagate is back, because of course it is. CNN did what they do best here which is obfuscate and deflect and take a serious issue and make it about Russia. Do you have any reason to believe that Russia is trying to fuel some of the civil unrest in these cities via social media or other methods? Uh, well, first of all, Dan, I condemn uh, any of the violence that's going on, and I find it astounding that my colleague in the Senate can't simply condemn this. Um, the peaceful protests, uh, I think, are calling out uh, in a very important way um, the, the murder of so many uh, black men and women at the, at the hands of police, and those protests are in the best tradition of the United States, uh, but we need to make sure that they're peaceful, as they largely have been, and that there aren't these incidents of violence. Uh, in terms of uh, what we can expect from the Russians or what the Russians are doing, the Russians four years ago, Dana, exploited Black Lives Matter. They set up their own false flags online uh, to try to divide people along racial lines. Are they doing uh, and it we now? Have to, uh, uh, they are, once again, uh, doing their best uh, in social media, in their overt media, 
and other means to grow these divisions again. And I think that uh, most pernicious, we, gotta, we have to worry about uh, their aggravating these tensions in our cities. I mean, honestly, guys, that's beyond comical. And exactly what we've been telling you from day one, what the real dynamic and purpose here is, that's what it is. It's just too, it's just too brazen now, and so people realize, oh, well, it's obvious. Like, the goal is take any serious, real, important issue, just pawn it off by saying Russia's causing this, and then therefore you neutralize that issue, take it off the table, and act like we don't, we don't have to really do anything about it because it's all just noise brought about by Russian bots. So, you know, if there was ever a real, like, if Medicare for All was ever on the brink of getting implemented, I guarantee you they would try to argue that the people who are most vociferous in making the case for Medicare for All online are Russian bots, and this is what Russia wants us to do, and therefore it is by definition bad, and we can't do it. I guarantee you. I guarantee you. I mean, they've already done it with Bernie, where they act like, oh, Russia pushed Bernie Sanders. And that's supposed to make you go, oh, well, obviously that means Bernie. This is all subconscious. Obviously Bernie's bad for America, because why Russia's pushing him on us in the same way that Russia pushed Donald Trump? It, it's... This is McCarthyism. It's what it is. It's the enemy. It's bad. And so look at the argument. The argument is, oh, the social unrest over police killings of black people? I mean, that Russia is exploiting this and dividing us further, and they're using social media, and they're driving a wedge between Americans and exacerbating this problem. So now instead of having the conversation about what should actually be done in terms of policy to fix this and talking about it like it's the organic problem that it is, it's Russia, Russia, Russia. It's a way to deflect and obfuscate. This reminded me, Dave Chappelle said this in an interview, I think it was with CNN. Um, him and John Stewart were being interviewed, and he's like, I don't believe stuff the media says anymore because they're ridiculous. Like, whenever there was a serious issue, the media would say, Russia. And then it's like, okay, really, it's Russia making us racist? Yes, they're trying, to use, they're trying to effectively make that point to get you to think, oh, by even engaging on this issue, protesting on this issue, talking about this issue, pushing for solutions on this issue, really, you're doing the bidding of Russia, so you should stop. That's the idea. That's the mindset. And it's also even more pernicious than that. Why? Because they say, oh, Russia is driving this issue through social media making the problem much worse, this is what they're saying. And the implication is, and sometimes they flat out say it, oh, we need more social media controls now. In the same way that they want to like crack down on fake news online, they would literally take any story they don't like, they meaning the establishment, and try to suppress it by claiming this is from Russia. I'm serious. Guys, this, I mean, is this not exactly what happened? when we got the WikiLeaks information. Remember? We learned from WikiLeaks that effectively the 2016 primary was rigged in favor of Hillary Clinton and against Bernie Sanders. There was immense detail that went into it. And the media did not discuss it very much because they made the argument, oh my God, this came from Russia. Russia gave the information to Julian Assange, so by us talking about it, we're doing Russia's bidding. We have to not do that because that's election interference. 
see the intellectual pretzels they twist themselves into to try to make these arguments? And that's really what we're facing, man. We're Honestly, we're dealing with people who are dishonest actors. I don't know how else to say it. These are dishonest actors, and they're willing to make the most absurd claims to shut you down when you're making good points. That's what it is. It happened the other day. Remember, um, black and Latino lobbyists are upset that progressives want a lobbyist, corporate lobbyist ban in Biden's administration. They tried to play the race card to make the Biden administration more corrupt, to have more corporate lobbyists by saying, hey, many corporate lobbyists are black and brown. I guess you hate black and brown people. This is what we're dealing with. This is on that same level. And uh, guys, they act like the Mueller report didn't happen. You would think, right, oh, my God, we're going to do this Mueller report. We're going to blow the lid off the whole Russia scandal, and then that'll be it for Donald Trump. The most pervasive belief that I saw repeatedly, even from people I respect, is that Donald Trump is effectively going to be taken out of the White House in handcuffs because they're going to uncover this Manchurian candidate plot. Then that didn't happen, and now they still, they didn't skip a beat, and they're right back to making the same arguments as if they weren't totally embarrassed. Sorry, guys, but this really is, Russiagate is democratic Benghazi, or Russiagate is democratic birtherism. It's just, you look ridiculous to people who aren't already in your own little shitty bubble. And this is such a great example of it here. Instead of talking about the police killing unarmed black people, instead of talking about the solutions to that, it's, hey, Russia's exacerbating this and making this problem worse. That's what I think is going on. Let's talk about how Russia's the enemy. So really, a neoconservative, hawkish logic ends up coming out of the conversation instead of finding a way to end police brutality, finding a way to ameliorate racial injustice. Now that conversation's on the sideline because idiot CNN hosts and Democratic politicians want to finger point at Russia somehow, no matter what. All right, let's get to a story that I find hilarious and interesting in many ways. Okay, here we go. One of the most prominent evangelical Christians in the country is involved in a sex scandal. Um, CNN's Anderson Cooper spoke to one of the people involved. I'm not kidding when I say this. It sounds fake, but it's real. There's a pool boy by the name of John Carlo. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Is that guy right there? Pool boy by the name of John Carlo. And he um he was sleeping with Jerry Falwell Jr.'s wife. You're gonna hear some of the details here, and then I have a lot to say about it. today I spoke with a man at the center of a scandal involving one of the most important evangelical leaders in the country. Giancarlo Granda is his name. He was a pool attendant in a Miami hotel when he met Jerry Falwell Jr. and his wife Becky. Some of their relationship remains in dispute, but both sides agree that Granda had a sexual relationship with Becky Falwell. Granda has said that Jerry Falwell would watch them. Both Falwells deny that. They say Granda was trying to uh, extort money from them. Granda denies that. Our discussion involved both sets of allegations as well as how we first met the Falwells. Let's just start at the beginning of, of how you came to, to meet them. 
Right. So you met them at the Fountain Blue Hotel. What happened? Yeah. Yeah, Fountain Blue. Fountain Blue Hotel work shift. Um, I noticed this woman behind me staring at me. Um, she's staring at me. You know, she's flirting back and forth, and uh, she invites me back to her hotel. Uh, she invites me back to her hotel. But before she invites me uh, back to the hotel, she's like, hey, by the way, my husband, he, he likes to watch. He likes to watch, and immediately I kind of, I pulled back. And I thought it was a little bit odd. I don't like to shame anyone for anything. It's okay, but I, I did find it odd at the moment. And she's like, don't worry. He, he, he's not going to intervene. He's just going to watch in the corner of the room. Um, he's going to watch in the corner of the room, and I'm like, okay, I'm a 20-year-old single guy. I'm like, why not? Do you know who and they were at that time? I had no idea who they were. They, at the end of my work shift, they, um, they called me through a blocked number, um, and then they told me to meet them at another hotel. Um, it was right by the phone loop. I meet them at this hotel. I walk into the, into the lobby, and Becky's sitting there. She's nervous. I'm nervous. Um, you know, she offers me whiskey to calm down, to relax, and, and then shortly after, we, we go up to the room. You're 20 years and old. Jay, I was 20 years old, the age of a Liberty University student, right? That's really important to remember. Go up, and Jerry's laying down. And, and there's two beds. He's laying down in one of the beds, and he's, you know, he's noticeably drunk and giggling. Um, and then, again, I'm, I'm a little bit worried, right? I'm like, what, what am I getting myself into? And then I said, uh, hey, at any point, if you get jealous or upset, uh, just let me know, and I'll walk out of here, no problem. You said that to Jerry Follow. I, I said that to Jerry Follow. He's like, no, but just go for it. Right? He encouraged me. He's like, just go for it. Did you get the sense that they had done this before? I mean, did it seem new to either of them? In hindsight, look, now, as a 29-year-old man, uh, I can see how they're very methodical in targeting me. It, it, it's very clear. Now, after years that have gone by, they told me that I was perfect. I was perfect, um, you know, and I, I just, I was exactly what they were looking for, is what they would tell me. Um, yeah. Perfect why? Well, to give context, when I was in high school, I suffered with video game addiction. Um, you, know, was, you know, I was a bit timid, nervous, and when I was working at the Fountain Blue, I was starting to come out of my shell, but I still had these insecurities, and I guess they detected, which made me, a, a, you know, an ideal target for them. Did, did Jerry Falwell participate? I mean, did he just watch? He would watch. Again, I don't want to go too much into the details at the moment, but he would watch and he enjoyed watching uh, me and Becky have sex. So he was sexually involved but just not actually physically participating with you. Right. He, he would just sit in the corner and, uh, and yeah, he was just um, enjoying watching us. The way he says that at the end. What I'm trying to say, Anderson, is he was enjoying watching us. He was enjoying watching us. <laughs> you can say it, dude. He's beating off in the corner. That's what he's doing. <laughs> All right, so there's a lot to say about this. Now, let's get it right off the bat. Let's get this out of the way. The issue is not let's judge him for this being his thing, or let's judge them for this being their thing. That's not the issue 
at all, not even close. You're free to do whatever you want to do if it's consenting adults. Totally fine. The issue, of course, is the deep, deep hypocrisy of it all. Because Jerry Falwell Jr., just like Jerry Falwell Sr., just like Ted Haggard, just like Pat Robertson, just like all these fundamentalist evangelical Christian preachers, part of their shtick is, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to tell you what is and isn't sexually acceptable. And if you go outside of those boundaries, you're sinning, you're evil, you're bad. I am casting judgment on you. And you got to clean your damn life up. So, you know, listen, this community, keep it real, for the longest time, they're massively anti-LGBTQ. They look at gay people as sinners who do not deserve to get married, do not deserve equal rights, and they shame, shame, shame all day long. Shame people who are not in the nuclear family, one man, one woman, white picket fence, a dog, two kids. Like, they shame all day long, man. So that's the issue. The issue is you can't preach your high and mighty, you know, nuclear family morality while you're also into this. If he was smart, he would do a face turn. And he would, he would come out and say, you know what, it's all true. Um, we were so wrong for judging everybody for so long. This is what we do. We're comfortable with doing it. We're comfortable in our own skin. And now I want you to know we are advocating for sexual liber- liberation and we're going to become massive Um, supporters of the LGBTQ community. We're going to donate a tremendous amount of money to it, and we're going to start attending events um, to repair the wounds and build new bridges and fight for anti-discrimination clauses and fight for, you know, fill in the blank with whatever sexual liberation and LGBTQ rights issues that there are. If he was smart, he would do that face turn. Is he going to do it? I don't know. But listen, in some ways I actually feel bad because Jerry Falwell Jr., I don't know how many of you... Most of you are probably too young to remember Jerry Falwell Sr., but he was one of the biggest evangelical preachers in the country. Super hardcore right-winger doctrinaire down the line. I imagine Jerry Falwell Jr. grew up in a house that was so immensely sexually repressed that he picked up all different types of, you know, kinks and hang-ups that, in his mind, plague him. Like, he might think that he's sinning every time he you know, he goes about and does some of the things that he likes. So in some ways, I feel bad for him. I'm also really interested in the dynamic of, because this clip goes on, by the way, I only showed you the first part of it. This clip goes on, and um, John Carlo recorded a phone call in 2018 that he had with Jerry Falwell Jr.'s wife. And in the phone call, she's like, she's basically saying to him, like, you know, you, you, have been telling me that you're hooking up with other people and I want you to know that that actually like hurts my feelings. Like I actually have feelings for you and I feel bad when you tell me that. And so I'm trying to like be a bigger person and get over it, but like I really care about you. And so it hurts when you casually tell me you're hooking up with other people. And again, Giancarlo recorded this. They played the phone call on CNN or at least portions of it on CNN. And the argument that he was going with is like, they're, what they're doing is emotionally manipulating me into guilt-tripping me into continuing to partake in this and, and be a part of it. And I don't know, man. I feel like Occam's razor might be that they actually, she actually kind of liked him, right? Am I a sucker? I mean, it's possible she's guilt-tripping him into, like, you better continue to have sex with us, or me in, in that instance, her. But I don't know. It sounded to me like she actually kind of liked him and did feel bad 
that he was saying stuff like that. See, here's the thing. I'm judging the hypocrisy of Jerry Falwell Jr. and his family and how they judge everybody else, but they're doing this behind closed doors. I'm not judging that this is what they enjoy. But the final piece of this, and this might actually be controversial, is John Carlo's not a victim, dude. He's, he's not a victim. And he's a little bit trying to play the victim. And that's kind of getting under my skin. Because he says, yeah, I was 20 years old when it happened. He willingly did it for a long amount of time. And he's trying to act like, oh, they groomed me and this and that. Man, you're 20 years old. You're not underage. That's perfectly legal. So own your decision. Like, I, I would have so much more respect for him if he, if he talked about this scandal, but also kind of owned it and was like, yeah, listen, I was young, I was horny, it sounded like a good idea, and I did it, and here are the details of it. Okay, interesting, fine, totally cool. But he's also trying to do the victim thing of like, oh my God, I was groomed, this is not okay. And it's like, mm, now you're losing me, son. You didn't have, you know, you didn't come to this realization the first time you were fucking his wife and he was beaten off in the corner? Because anybody who really had an issue with this, that day would have been like, oh my God, hell no, I don't want a dude beating off in the corner as I'm doing this. But he didn't, and he kept doing it. He did for like years, I think. Years. So now I'm supposed to feel bad for you? I don't feel bad for you. You chose that. Don't play the victim card. You're not a victim. And it actually cheapens real victims. So I don't like that he's playing the victim, but I do get the hypocrisy angle and how... You know, the issue is that they always judge everybody else. Judge, judge, judge. Shame, shame, shame. Everybody else for their, for their consensual sex lives. And now, you know, hopefully they learn a lesson. But again, I am interested just in the dynamics of it. And the, honestly, the dynamics of Jerry Falwell Jr. literally is a cuck. I'm not saying that to put him down. That's what it's called. That's what this is. He's a cuck. <laughs> so I'm interested in the dynamic. Like, what, why does he like it? Why do you like it? You know? All cucks out there, sound off in the comment section. <laughs> Again, I'm not judging you. I'm just saying why. I'm curious why they like it. My guess is that there's some sort of sexual turn-on from humiliation. So he feels like he's being humiliated because somebody's screwing his wife in front of him. But for whatever reason, probably has a lot to do with his childhood. That feeling of humiliation is a sexual turn-on for him. I mean, that's almost certainly what it is, right? In terms of, for her, I'm also curious. What is, like, does she have an emotional connection to everybody who's part of this, you know, cuckolding? Is that, is that what it's called? Cucking? Cuckolding? <laughs> does she, like, does she really like Giancarlo? If they're doing it with Giancarlo, which clearly they were, how many other people did you have in the rotation? I don't, I don't think I really buy if they're like, oh, it's just him. It sounded very mechanical as to the genesis of it. Like, she, you know, she walked up to him, you know, that night he's screwing her <laughs> or soon thereafter. So how many people? How many people are in the rotation? Three? Are there three Giancarlos? Are there five? Are there 12? How do you feel about each one of them? Is it so mechanical that you're just sort of going through the motions and recycling them and you barely remember their names? It sounds like she definitely remembered Giancarlo's, you know, name and started to like him after a while. So I don't know. I'm just really... I'm just really curious as to the, like, almost like the emotional dynamics of all of it. And, you know, in some ways I do feel bad because this guy's got his, they all have their sex life just being blasted out there for everybody to see. If he wasn't a hypocrite, if they weren't hypocrites, I would honestly just be defending them. But it's the hypocrisy angle that makes me more judgmental to say, like, 
how dare you judge everybody else for their consensual sex lives, and then now you're doing this behind closed doors. Again, hopefully they do, uh, you know, a face turn, and they become good guys who want to stop discrimination and want to fight for sexual liberation or whatever, but who knows if that's going to happen, man? Who knows if that's going to happen? But I hope they all get over it, and I hope this is another lesson for people. Just like, remember Ted Haggard? Ted Haggard, fundamentalist, preacher, massively anti-gay, and what happened? He was caught with a gay prostitute and crystal meth. There's an old saying. How does it go? The silent silent sinners squeal the loudest or something like that. So, yeah, they view what they're doing as sinning, and they're the loudest and most judgmental of other people. It's why some of the most vehemently anti-gay people secretly have those feelings. Um, what I really hope people learn and accept is that, guys, there is no, as long as you're dealing with consenting adults, there is no moral or ethical angle to it. It's totally acceptable if it's consenting adults. That's it. So it's okay. It's okay. In a weird way, I'm actually here to lend, you know, a, a helping hand. Maybe not the right phrase in this instance. <laughs> not helping with my hand. Not happening. <laughs> to, to lend a voice of support to people in this situation, which is don't, it's okay. Like, it's, it's really not a big deal. It's just what you're into. It's whatever. You know, so and I, I hope that on some level people can internalize that, you know, internalize the fact that it's, it, if it's your thing, it's your thing. Nobody's getting hurt. You know, it is what it is. So just accept it. And also what what is their marriage like? Because I could see it going either way that like Falwell, the Falwells really love each other and they're so comfortable with each other that they're willing to open up the door to try this stuff to even float the idea. You really got to trust the person. Right. That's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is like, you know, who knows? Maybe they were so miserable that they're like, hey, we don't let other people into this, and we're going to divorce each other and hate each other forever, so let's bring other people into it. I don't know. I don't know. But it's all curious. It's all interesting. If only they weren't hypocrites. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and then I'll come back with some more stories. Um... A poll that will terrify you, and I do want to talk about the Rand Paul incident from a few days ago. So stay right there, guys. We'll be right back.
right, bitch, I'm back, baby. I am back, I am back. All right. Let's talk about the Rand Paul thing. I honestly should have done this segment earlier in the show, but it was in the rundown. It was far down, and I would have had to rearrange graphics and whatnot. Here we go. So a few days ago, Rand Paul had to be escorted by cops to his hotel um, because he was surrounded by protesters. I believe this was after, it might have been after Donald Trump gave his, uh, his RNC speech. And um, he was out, he was in the streets of D.C., he was staying at a hotel, I guess, and he needed to be escorted by the cops because protesters were, I guess, loud and there were a bunch of them who were really close to him and they were being aggressive in terms of demands and what they were calling for. So I'm going to show you a little part of the video here. It's actually a much longer video, but credit to John Farina Photo, J-O-N-F-A-R-I-N-A, photo, at John Farina Photo on Twitter, and credit also to Jordan Chariton's uh, Status Coup YouTube channel, because this little clip you're about to see here is from his, you know, longer video, but um, here's what happened, then we'll discuss. when they said, say her name, say her name, they're trying to get Rand Paul to say Brianna Taylor's name. Um, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, you can go back and listen. I listened a few times. It sounds to me like the guy's not even getting Rand Paul's name right. I think they called him Ryan repeatedly. Anyway, um, yeah, it, you're barking up the wrong tree because Rand Paul is one of the most, if not the most, pro-criminal justice reform um, senators in the country, but also he proposed a bill called the Justice for Breonna Taylor Act. They're trying to get him to say Breonna Taylor's name. And he, he proposed the Justice for Breonna Taylor Act, and that bans no-knock warrants, which were the problem which led to the killing of Breonna Taylor. So the guy who's most on their side and most fighting for the exact change that they want is the one 
who's getting a bunch of crap. I mean, listen, my issue with it is just it's, it's uneducated. It's ignorant. You don't know that this guy's actually your ally on this front. <laughs> like, if he wasn't, if you wanted to go after Rand for something that he's bad on, by all means. But you can't tell him, you can't try to prod him to do the right thing on something he's already doing the right thing on. That just, that makes no sense. That makes no sense at all. <laughs> so that, uh, that's the thing that's, that sucks about this, is that they're just wrong about where he stands on the issue. Like, this is an, a very specific issue where he's actually 100% in agreement with you. So it, I, I don't know. I think it's very strange. Now, I will say beyond that, um, I do think people overhype this too much as if, like, he was assaulted or something. I don't think he was assaulted. There was one moment where, where something with a bike happened, but I don't know. I couldn't tell exactly what it was. Somebody said, oh, they tried to throw a bike at Rand Paul. I don't know if I saw that, to tell you the truth. I really don't. Um, yes, it got a little hectic, and it, it was a little loud and aggressive, sure. But I don't, think, I don't think they broke any laws there. And actually, if you want to be serious about it, if you really want to get change... Imagine all the politicians were, had loud, aggressive protesters making them uncomfortable, not doing any physical violence. I'm against physical violence for sure. But if you make politicians uncomfortable and you do it about specific issues and it happens repeatedly, they are going to think twice before they do that bad thing again. So imagine politicians were mobbed by people like this. Again, no physical violence, but something like this because of, the vote for the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war and, and people were on them like, you better in the wars, you better in the wars, you better in the wars now, you better in the wars. You know how many people died? You know, you got blood on your hands. You know that, right? So in terms of the actual tactic of what's going on here, as long as there's no physical violence, as long as there's no crossing of that clear line, then I actually really like the tactic of like, make politicians feel uncomfortable. If all it takes to bring about real change is making politicians feel uncomfortable, then of course I'm pro them feeling uncomfortable. Again, the only issue I have with this is they're just wrong on the facts in that they don't know that this is a guy who's probably, if not their closest ally, one of their closest allies when it comes to criminal justice reform, when it comes to ending the racist drug war, when it comes to literally the Justice for Breonna Taylor Act, banning no-knock warrants. So... That's what upsets me. And actually, I do think, guys, that this speaks to a larger trend that we have to deal with on the left and in, in these protest movements, which is if you don't have specific, clear goals that you're fighting for, then at the end of the day, you're only blowing off steam and virtue signaling. Sorry, I know that sounds harsh, but it's true. Good intentions without a plan and goals is just virtue signaling. You go out there and you say how great you are and you repeat the slogans that make you feel good, and that's it. That gets nothing done. That's a waste of time. So what we need to reckon with on the left is the lack of leadership in the movements and the lack of clear, defined goals that everybody can rally around. And I honestly believe that the establishment knows that the left is so disorganized that they depend on us never being able to get our stuff together and never being able to come down with a plan and clear, defined goals. And so I think that this speaks to that problem, because if you're not, if you are unaware of where Rand Paul stands on this and you don't realize he's actually your ally on this issue, then, you know, obviously I don't expect you to have a list of three or four detailed policies 
that you're like, this is what we're asking for. This is why we're out here. And so, you know, and also this stuff, keep it real, this stuff does turn off middle America, if you will, which some people might scoff at that and be like, who cares? But if you're in the business of trying to win and get your policies implemented, you have no choice but to garner the sympathies of people who otherwise you wouldn't really concern yourself with. So anyway, that's the situation. Rand Paul had to be escorted by cops to his hotel. The tactic itself, I don't think it crossed the line. I don't think it was, it was borderline, but I think it's on the safe side of that line. But the only downside of this one is they're just wrong about who Rand Paul is and what his priorities are and what side he's on when it comes to this. He's unequivocally on the correct side on this issue. Okay. Next. If you needed more reasons for the election to terrify you, Bloomberg reports here, a new online study finds that Republicans and independents are twice as likely as Democrats to say they would not give their true opinion in a telephone poll question about their preference for president in the 2020 election. That raises the possibility that polls understate support for President Donald Trump. Some 11.7% of Republicans and 10.5% of independents said they would not give their true opinion versus 5.4% of Democrats, according to the study by Cloud Research LLC, a Queens, New York-based company that conducts online market research and data collection for clients. Among the reasons they gave was that it's dangerous to express an opinion outside of the current liberal viewpoint. According to Lieb Littman, the co-chief executive officer and chief research officer. Okay, so that's interesting. And basically the argument here is, that means there's always going to be in the polls are always going to come across more bias in favor of Democrats because more Republicans are not going to tell you that they're Republicans and they're going to vote Republican. That's what that means. So I don't know. Here's the thing. I don't know how much pollsters tweaked their criteria post the 2016 election. I'm sure they did something to try to ameliorate the little bit that they were off. By the way, they weren't that off. They were only off in terms of their prediction of the outcome, in terms of the actual numbers nationally, they weren't too far off. But, like, I'm sure they did some changes to try to account for what effectively was, like, a little bit of a secret Trump vote. Um, But I don't know how much they accounted for it. And, you know, should you keep this in mind with every poll you look at? I don't know. I'm not an expert. But I do know that recently I've been seeing a lot of contradictory evidence when it comes to this election. Um, Biden had a pretty big lead. That lead has slimmed a little bit, but how much? That I mean, that's the question. There's one poll from a questionable polling company that has them effectively tied in Michigan when Biden had a giant lead in Michigan previously. Now, in the, in the average of polls, he's up like seven points in Michigan. So, again, how close is it really? I don't know. There's another poll I just saw that apparently people who were third-party voters previously – Now Biden is winning them over Trump two to one, two to one. So, you know, that's a data point that cuts in Biden's direction. So I don't know, man, I could sit here all day and ring off different things that I've read, which indicate contradictory things for the upcoming election. Um, But I don't know how useful it is. I don't know how fruitful it is. 
I know Michael Moore was just doing the same thing that he did in 2016. Now, in 2016, he was accurate. He was dead on when he said, I think Trump can win. And he gave all these reasons, and he was right. Well, now he's sounding the alarm again for 2020. And he's going to some specific polls and showing some numbers and saying, hey, this is why you got to pay attention, man. You can't, like, this is real. This is still a race. It's real. And he fears a Trump victory again. Um, The reason why... Listen, I don't know what's going to happen, and my predictions can change as we move forward. But at this moment, I still think Biden is a slight favorite. And the reason I think he's a slight favorite, there are many reasons, but I still think Trump's 2020 strategy is significantly worse than his 2016 strategy. And beyond that, there's still a pandemic and a depression on his watch. And it's hard to overcome a pandemic and a depression. It's very, very hard to overcome a pandemic and a depression. And then you mix in with that, that you're running a horrendous strategy. I still think Biden's uh, a favorite. But listen, I'm trying to give you data points on the other side of this as well. I'm trying to give you the total picture. And um, there you have it. There you have it. So polls might perpetually undercount Republicans. Do with that information whatever you will. All right, guys. I love you, baby. I'll talk to you guys soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. We will be back in a couple days with another new amazing show. Hopefully we'll squeeze in a Kyle and Corn this week. Your boy's out. Stay safe out there, guys. Peace.